You're listening to The Lively Show, episode 208. Welcome to The Lively Show. I'm your host, Jess Lively, and this blogcast is designed to uplift, inspire, and add a little extra intention to your everyday. Welcome to the show, guys. Thank you so much, as always, for listening. Today's episode is brought to you by Squarespace. For those of you that may not know, I love using Squarespace for our new classes and programs. It is so easy to start a Squarespace site and it's just easy for our team to work on. It's a cinch for me to log in and change things as I want to and so much more. You guys have probably heard many episodes in the past of other Lively Show listeners that also love it as well. And if you wanna give it a try for your own new website, Get a free 14-day trial of Squarespace to give it a try for yourself over at squarespace.com lively. And if you like it, and only if you like it, enter the code lively at checkout when you're actually starting to pay for your service, that will give you 10% off. So feel free to use that 10% off by using the code lively. Now let's move on. Today I am speaking with you from Sydney, but as you're listening to this, I'll be in Ubud, Indonesia. Now I'm still learning how to say Ubud. I'm probably saying it wrong, so give me some time to get there and learn how to say it correctly, and then I'll be correcting that pronunciation. It's been fun to go around the world and learn how to say these cities from a non-American point of view. Like Edinburgh took me about a week and a half to be able to say correctly. I kept wanting to say Edinburgh, like Pittsburgh or Edinburgh. But anyways, let's move on. In other news, Awareness at Home, that is my newest course. It is the piece of my work that's really the kind of predecessor to writing to your intuition. If you find writing to your intuition a little bit difficult, this is the place to start. Awareness at Home is a two-week at-home retreat experience that has community and teachings and meditation introductions. So you are going to begin to pull your awareness away from the ego because as you do that, then you're starting to be able to tell the difference between when you're hearing from the ego and when you're hearing from the intuition. Registration closes tomorrow, which is April 7th, and we begin on Monday next week. Don't worry if you're listening to this later than this April. You will also be able to do this on your own in a self-paced way in the future as well. But to join the class live, which is the only planned time to launch it live, do go over and register today. All right, now let's move on. Hopefully, as I am recording this here in Sydney, I'm looking out over Elizabeth Bay and Rushcutters Bay. It's so pretty here. And there is some tropical music going on outside my window. Not sure if you're able to hear the trumpet or not, but if you are, maybe this will be a little bit of soothing music to go with our episode today. And if not, now you know what's going on outside my window. So let's talk about this. This is actually a episode that I think is really going to be interesting for people that especially have corporate jobs. I recently went to Search Inside Yourself, which was created as a program from Google that I think became a book as well and now is this kind of traveling workshop. It's two days long and there were two women running it here in Sydney last week. So I did this two-day event and I was really excited. They had the words neurology, consciousness, and mindfulness. So you know me. I didn't even, I don't even think I even read the sales page. I saw those three words and the word Google and I was like, sign me up. Please let me know what is going on in the world of mindfulness training and how Google's approaching it. And I'll give you some insights because this is kind of like that Eckhart Tolle retreat that I went to last fall where I did an episode giving you guys the insights I took from that. 
I look at these opportunities to go on these incredible experiences, and I look at them as ways for me to be your eyes and ears on the ground and for me to invest the money that it takes, because some of these things are pretty expensive, to be honest. And then bring them back to you on the show and share what I think will be helpful for you as well. So I've got some overall insights right now I'm gonna share, and then I'm gonna break up this episode into two pieces. It won't be super detailed or long or you know overwhelming, but I do wanna give you guys insights from this experience, especially, like I said, if you're in corporate world, this is definitely gonna be an interesting one because I've got a few tips that they gave for people trying to bring mindfulness into the workplace. And even if you're more advanced in terms of your mindfulness, or you're not in a corporate environment, I also have takeaways, seven specifically, that apply to everyone regardless of whether you're in an office or not. So let's start with the overall insights. This is before I'm getting into it. Number one is that the basics of mindfulness are pretty groundbreaking in corporate culture. I was sitting there among several hundred people. I'm not exactly sure how many were in the experience overall, but it was in a pretty large kind of ballroom type atmosphere for two days. And It was pretty basic. I mean, it was really going over, I would say, a mile wide and an inch deep into all different aspects of mindfulness. But for many people there, this was truly mind-blowing. For myself, with all the work I've been doing over this type of stuff, and for anyone that's pretty advanced, let's say you're a yoga teacher training person, or you've meditated for several years or gone to a retreat in some way or another, this would be something I would suggest skipping if it ever comes to your town. But of course, if your company's paying you to go or you you are personally just still interested anyways, feel free to do so. But especially if this is something that you're looking to bring into a corporate environment or you're totally brand new, this could be really great. So it was fun to see where everybody's at. I think if you're listening to this show, you still may be new to mindfulness, but I know a lot of listeners here are a little further along than what was shared in this experience. So What I learned in part was that a lot of people are still just getting to this work and it helped me remind myself that not everyone that listens to this show had the same amount of experience and exposure to mindfulness in the ways that I have or other listeners have as well. Number two is that you would be surprised about the people you might expect to be uninterested or unopen, to be closed off to this stuff. It was fun to see people surprisingly open and receptive. Now, obviously it was a self-selected group of people that weren't there, I don't think by force from their company, so true. Maybe the ones that are totally uninterested in this didn't even show up at all if their companies offered this opportunity to them. But even there, while I was watching, it was so cool to see people of all ages and both sexes and sometimes go, you know, I wouldn't have expected this person to be as receptive as they are. Or someone was talking and basically was channeling while they were there, which was this person I never would have imagined would have been such an open source of that type of information. So that was really cool as well. So sometimes you would be surprised by the people who are open to this work. And then last but not least, number three, the insight seemed to be that in corporate culture, people tend to tiptoe around mindfulness in corporate environments. And I wouldn't say tiptoe in that, there's kind of like this whispering, this subculture that's kind of growing in this grassroots way that's not over the top and it's not in your face. And actually, in part, I think it can tend to be a little bit almost apologetic or secretive, but when not exactly that 
hidden. It actually, because of this softer approach, this kind of, this is what I'm doing and people ask me about it type of experience. I'm also finding that from what people were sharing, they're seeing mindfulness from this softer, but not necessarily totally hidden place spread faster in their workplaces than they expected it to, which I think is a little bit interesting because a lot of people seem to kind of almost apologize about their interest in mindfulness or not want to step on anyone's toes that's not interested in it yet. And while I think that there is so much benefit to not trying to force someone to do something that they don't want to do or that they're not interested or ready for yet. At the same time, I think there's almost this sometimes it kind of teeters a little bit on hiding it in almost an apologetic way, which I don't think is necessarily the best. But most of the people by far and large were just like, they're enjoying it, experiencing it, and people were then drawn to it in their corporate culture. All right, so now let's move on to the parts of the show. We have part one, which is seven highlights from the training that apply to everyone. So no matter what your corporate or non-corporate experience is, it can apply to you. And then part two is tips for bringing mindfulness into the workplace. So let's get started. Part one, highlights from the training that apply to you, myself, and everyone. The first thing I'm gonna talk about is my own personal revelation that people seem to perk up when concepts were quoted from a scientific study, which is so interesting because these spiritual teachings, like let's say Buddhism, for example, have been talking about mindfulness for centuries, yet it seems to be when the science, like, oh, neurology studies show blank, it seems like people seem to perk up and just kind of take it a little bit more seriously. Now, I don't know how much you've heard me talk about this on the show. I want to talk more about this in the future, but the rational mindset and the scientific materialism of our times, that's kind of where the predominance, the bulk of many people in their consciousness are right now and are world. So it makes sense, but I've also noticed it kind of seems like this is what I wrote in my notes. Maybe we're using science as our quote unquote permission slip to walk into the concepts of mindfulness. Now, I don't think there's anything inherently wrong about that, but I think that it's kind of doing a disservice to the intuitive part of ourselves that may resonate with concepts. It's kind of like we're only going to really try it or we're only going to give ourselves a shot if this study proves something that's been spoken about for centuries. And it's like, why do we need this study to give us the permission slip in our own internal mind to appreciate or even just experiment with these types of things. I think we can use our intuition a little bit more in many cases, not all, you know, but many times I think we're using science as this permission slip, which maybe is precluding us from trying new things that don't have studies around them yet because we're waiting for that scientific study to give us that permission slip when really our intuition might be more open than our logical left brain may be allowing in that moment. So that would just be a little note that I had, but let's talk about something to do when you perceive a threat. This is highlight number one. So they talked about many things. Like I said, it was a lot of very high level, kind of surface level covering a smattering of things. They also have a more deep dive intensive program for people that wanted to go deeper, but this was kind of an introductory course to a ton of different concepts. So I'm just gonna pull out the ones I found the most relevant. And this threat one was pretty interesting. So it said, what do you do if you perceive a threat? Now, 
You could perceive a threat at work or at home or in the real world. And this isn't necessarily like a threat, like a terrorist attack. This is, could be like someone comes up and says something to you at work or in your life that causes some level of fear, anxiety, or like this arousal state, this state of being triggered by something. That perception of threat. What do we do when we feel that way? And let's be honest, sometimes we can also trigger ourselves and have our own thoughts be perceived as threats. So here we're there, five steps. It's kind of a lot because there's five, but let me explain each one. It's S-B-N-R-R, which makes no sense. It's not easy to remember, but the first part when you feel this trigger, let's give you as an example. So let's say, Your boss comes and says, I'd love to have a meeting with you on Friday at four. Now, that could trigger some fear. They actually used that as one of the examples during the two-day event. They talked about this boss that wanted to speak with each employee after a big project was over. Now, the people that were done with the project, when they got these emails individually saying, I'd like to talk to you on this certain date and time on our own, they perceive that as a threat, like they might be getting let go because the project had wrapped up. Now, the intention of the actual boss was not to do that. They wanted to specifically thank individually each person on the team, but the reaction from the people was that there was this trigger or potential threat. They couldn't understand what was happening because they didn't get the context of what that meeting would be about. So let's pretend your boss does that and you're triggered by it in that way. Or maybe in a relationship, you get a text from a partner that says, we need to talk. Something like that, okay? So we have a trigger. We need to talk. Actually, whether it's your boss or your partner, either one. What they suggest to do is first to stop. Because the first thing that your brain will do once it's triggered is try to pull other thoughts that are like it towards you. Abraham Hicks, actually, sidebar, says that after 16 seconds, one thought will gather more thoughts like it to you. And then after 68 seconds, I believe, then you'll create a state around that thought. But if you just have one little thought, just like a random one, If it doesn't have that full 16 seconds to ruminate, if you can stop it right when it starts, that is very helpful, stopping the momentum before it builds. So you stop. The second step is to breathe, to do a deep breath. I like to hold my hand on my chest when I do this. We'll talk more about heart-brain coherence in an upcoming episode, but just know that by stopping, Putting your hand on your chest where your heart is and breathing and focusing your breath and on your chest at the same time into your heart, focusing your mind's eye on your heart is very good for your heart rate, your perspiration, respiration, and variable heart rates. Very good to get your heart beat in sync with your brain waves. By the way, the heart-brain stuff, coherence, is not part of Google's training, but is something that I think is a little bit even more cutting edge and leading edge, which like I said, we'll have more about in an upcoming episode, but stopping breathing and try to put your hand on your chest if you can to help you even solidify back into the body further instead of into the mind. Step three is then to notice. Notice what's going on around you and your immediate environment to notice and to recognize and get out of the story as much as possible then to reflect on the experience that's triggering you, to reflect on it and say, is there another way this could be different than what I'm assuming it is? Let's look at all of the factors here. And then once you've reflected to respond. So instead of 
lashing out with whatever the ego's initial reaction from that first trigger would be. Stop, breathe, notice your surroundings, reflect on alternative possibilities, and then respond. So stop, breathe, notice, reflect, respond. All right, now let's move on. So Takeaway number two was a really helpful breathing mantra. Now, this can be really helpful if you have an ego that is trying to shame you about something. Let's say you're feeling guilty or shame-filled or regretful about something. Maybe you lashed out a friend, a partner, or a child, maybe your parents. What you can do, and it doesn't mean that you have lashed out. There could be many reasons you could be beating yourself up internally. When that happens, a helpful breathing mantra could be, on the in-breath, I do my best. You say that in your mind's eye, in your mind's in your mind, you repeat, I do my best as you breathe in. And as you breathe out, you say, I let go of the rest. I do my best. I let go of the rest. That repetition can be a really helpful mantra to keep you out of a shame spiral and to give yourself compassion and empathy, which we'll get to more of in a second, more on empathy in a second. But now let's move on to takeaway three. This was about flow day two in the first few hours. They were talking about flow alignment and values. And of course, you know me, that's exactly what I've been teaching for several years. So I was like, this is my jam. And they approach it obviously differently than I do. And they were definitely much more surface level into their interpretations of aspects within these because of their time constraints. However, I did have some helpful ideas that I wanted to share that they talked about, which I don't normally speak about. So in the concept of flow, they describe flow, and it's a little different than how I would. They described it as, and I do agree with it, by the way, so I love it, is to be involved in an activity for its own sake, that the joy and the activity that you're doing, there's no destination necessarily that's as important as the journey of just doing the activity itself. So that is what their definition for flow was. And they had this interesting little chart. So if you're going to imagine it in your mind's eye, close your eyes or don't close your eyes if you are running or if you're in a car right now, but just try to imagine in your mind's eye a chart. So you have the vertical axis and you have the horizontal axis. All right, and then remember, think of it like a money chart, like a stock market ticker, if you're imagining like the up axis and the across axis, your vertical and your horizontal. All right, so normally when you think about that, you're gonna think about that diagonal 45 degree line that's kind of like profits are ever increasing. So think of that type of line going from the bottom all the way up into the right of the chart, right? Think of like the stock ticker and it's going really well. That type of chart, they used flow, and I think they were quoting someone's work on this, but I don't remember whose it was. I didn't write it down, but they had on the vertical was the level of challenge of an activity, so how hard something is. So it goes from really easy at the lowest zero point to the very hard or challenging at the top. And then it had on the horizontal, on the across axis, that was about your skill level. So from very low skill to higher skill. They defined flow as that 45 degree line that's like your profits are ever increasing from the lowest and then up into the right. That type of area, if you will, that is the sweet spot is as your challenge gets harder, so do your skills get stronger. If you were finding yourself outside, if you were getting things much harder, but your skills were not increasing at the same level, that would cause anxiety. So if you were in the upper 
let's say like the upper quadrant where above that 45 degree line, that was where anxiety lives. When the challenge is bigger than your skills are progressing, that causes anxiety. And on the flip side, if you're below that sweet spot, that money line, if you will, then you're kind of in boredom where your skills are getting better, 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 but the challenges aren't rising to meet it. Flow is where there's this sweet area, this gradation in the middle. It's not a perfect line. They had it as kind of a range, but the general range was, as your challenges get harder, so do your skills get stronger. So that was interesting in terms of flow. And then part four, the takeaway was around alignment. Now for them, they focused on alignment being your work is in alignment with your values. Now you guys know me, I love some PPP, FFE, uppercase V values. If you have no idea what that is, go check out Life With Intention online. That is the jam of Life With Intention online. But for their little way of helping people access their values, they did not nearly go into as much detail as I would, but what they did ask people to do, and I never actually thought to do this, they asked people to think of the three people they admire throughout history. Now, just three of the people that they most think of as people they admire. And then they asked us to pull out or to write down five values we resonate or we identify as a part of that person and what they represent to us. Then we were asked to notice any trends in the values that we had from these three people we picked and then see if they helped maybe identify our own personal values as well. The idea is that if we pick and self-select for people that we're drawn to, we look at the values we're drawn to within those people we like, that we're more likely to see some themes around what's important to us as well. So I'll give you guys an example. If you wanna try this yourself, feel free to pick the people you would like to do, but I'll give you guys what I wrote down in my notes as I did this exercise. For me, I picked Ben Franklin, Oprah Winfrey, and Viktor Frankl. You guys probably know who Ben Franklin is. I named my dog after him because I love him so much. Oprah Winfrey, the inspiration for The Lively Show and pretty much everything I do, no surprise there. And then Viktor Frankl, which many of you will know, he wrote Man's Search for Meaning. He was a psychoanalyst in the 1940s, 50s, and I think the 60s too, and he went through Auschwitz. So he was a concentration camp survivor and wrote Man's Search for Meaning afterwards, explaining what that experience was like and what other Holocaust survivors used to live and to to survive those experiences and even what the experiences were like for many that he met that did not live. So the values I had for these were, for Ben, I wrote that he was curious, entrepreneurial, witty, and self-aware. For Oprah, I reflected on her reflective nature. She's very self-reflective, fun, spiritual, and committed to consciousness. And Victor, I wrote he was vulnerable, reflective, open, and compassionate. Now, those are all values that I definitely have within what I find important or part of maybe more my personality traits, I'm not quite sure, but those are things I wrote down in this example, and I then wrote down my own five, but instead of actually picking the values from these three people, which all did definitely relate to things I find important, I actually just let my intuition write down what it wanted. So the things that came from my intuition were pleasure, growth, joy, flow, and love. Now, none of those are what I wrote down for those three people, but I could see some of those aspects within those three people as well. They just weren't the things that I wrote down with my conscious thinking mind when I did the exercise. So my values that came up for me in this were pleasure, growth, joy, Joy, flow and love. Not surprising if you've listened to any of the 2016-2017 Lively Show. 
Okay, so feel free to try that one yourself if you're interested as a way to help you identify your values as well. And now let's move on to part five, the takeaway number five, which was around empathy. Now I find empathy very interesting. They did a few references to Brene Brown in this work, which was cool. And you guys may have heard that Brene Brown episode here on The Lively Show as well around boundaries. So Brene is awesome. And I loved what they had talked about empathy. I think it was interesting to hear them explain it from a work context because emotional intelligence is so powerful in addition to mindfulness and self-awareness, also having the awareness of other people's emotions and being able to have that empathy can be very powerful as a leader as well. So for empathy, they had two pieces of this and I loved the second part in particular. They described empathy as A, the ability to experience and understand what other people feel, the ability to experience experience and understand what other people feel. And then this is my favorite part. Part B was while maintaining a clear discernment about your own and the other person's feelings and perspectives. So that's what I loved. I love that they said this is about having the ability to experience and understand what other people feel and maintain a clear discernment about your own and the other person's feelings and perspectives. So empathy was not about agreeing with the other person. It was about understanding the other person. So you can have your own point of view on the situation about the budget cut and the other person can have their own view on the budget cut. And you can hold both of those points of views and feelings and perspectives at the same time. You're not negating your own by feeling and experiencing theirs. So it does not need to be something you agree with. It's just something you can respect and understand. That was really cool. I love that because I hear a lot about people that are apparently very empathic and they really get worn down by other people's energy. And while I think that that is definitely the case, I think people can, I think it's so cool to learn how to be able to experience other people's energy without it taking a toll too far on your own, that you're able to maintain a sense of withinness that is anchored in what is important to you while still being able to have empathy, experience, and understanding of the other person's feelings. Just not letting yourself getting swept up completely into their experience. So if they're freaking out, that you can be able to have empathy for them, but at the same time, not freak out yourself. Empathy without necessarily getting swept up. So that was part five. Now let's talk about part six. And this was really cool. I love this one. This was talking about why we think we can't be kind to ourselves. So they were talking about empathy and compassion, and then they segued that into how do we apply this to ourselves and the reasons we try not to have empathy or compassion for ourselves. They had three or four reasons that they thought a lot of people, these are mindsets or thought patterns that typically prevent people from really giving themselves compassion and understanding of their own shortcomings or their own perceived failures. Here were the reasons they found people typically will not give themselves self-empathy or self-compassion. Number one is avoidance, that the thought is if I am kind or compassionate to myself, I'll avoid changing whatever it is. 
Number two is that I will feel apathetic, that I won't care about changing it. If I have compassion and empathy, I'm not going to care about changing it. Number three is that I'm not going to have any motivation to change. I'm not even going to try. If I have self-compassion and empathy, I'm not going to try to change anything. And then lastly, it said they would have no effort to change. They would take no effort to change. So they're not even going to bother. What they actually found through some study that they referenced was that people often, once they give themselves that self-empathy and compassion, do the opposite of all of these things. They find that people have more effort to change, not less. So all of these ideas are all false beliefs and the research has actually shown the opposite is true, that having self-compassion and empathy is actually the way or path to having more effort to change. And then last but not least, number seven, this is about difficult conversations. Now this is actually, they referenced a book called Difficult Conversations. So this came from that teaching, I believe, but they talked about this concept I really liked that was that impact is not intent. So we talk a lot about intention here on the show, and the idea is that we must realize, especially when having difficult conversations, that the impact the conversation will have does not necessarily match our intention. So we may not want to upset someone, But the fact is that our conversation with them, if it's difficult, may have the impact of actually upsetting them. So that's something to remember. So just because you don't mean for it to be bad, or let's look at the example I shared earlier of the person who wanted to have these thankful meetings and gratitude meetings with all of their staff, they had no idea that the impact of that email was going to send people into a frenzy. Their intention was good, but the impact was not what they expected it to be. So they talked about three aspects of things to consider in order to have empathy around difficult conversations and have this kind of self-emotional and interpersonal awareness about what could be happening. There are three aspects to consider. One, consider the content of what you say, like sending out the email of, I'd like to see you in my office on Monday. Then the feelings of the person. So what may the feelings of that person be when they hear that news? And then also to consider what the identity of that person is going to be triggered. Like what part of their identity may be triggered by a difficult conversation? Maybe the content of what you say may trigger feelings that question the identity, or actually I would say probably what's happening is the identity gets triggered. The ego goes, oh my gosh, am I competent enough? Am I a good person? Am I worthy of love and respect? All of those identity factors. I think those thoughts would then trigger the feelings of the person to go one way or another. But those are things to consider, they said, is the content of what you say, consider the feelings of the other person and the identity. Now, what I find most fascinating is to actually turn this in on myself, to think about what my identity when I'm triggered is around whatever they're saying and what my feelings are as well. So it's not necessarily, I think, useful only to think about this for other people, but also think about this for yourself. And as we talked about earlier this week, really, I think if we can start to remove labels of identity that are not useful because life is ever-changing, if we can let go of as many labels as possible in our identity, we're just going to be less triggered in general, even with difficult conversations. When we're not so concerned about protecting the concepts and identities of, am I competent? Am I a good person? Am I worthy? 
worthy of love and respect. We take it for granted, this is just me talking here, not Google, but I'll say we take it for granted that we think that we need to protect these identities. We need to keep these markers of self quote esteem up for ourselves. And that's just a story we've told in our society for a really long time. But I actually think the transrational, the beyond of this, the beyond of the ego is not really concerned with any of these labels. I can tell you my intuition and Joe, whatever you want to call it, has no interest in the identity labels that my ego often clings to. It has 100% consistent regard for me in all things and all cases and is not triggerable. So the identity is not triggered or shaken from that point of view. So yeah, that's what I would say. That's just a little tangent on myself in terms of maybe, yes, I think we need to be aware that other people probably have these egos and these identities. And yes, we want to be kind and considerate. And also, can we in our own experiences also work to not be triggered by other people's stories so much because of these concepts of identity that we cling on or hold on to? Just a nagging little part of me that's going to think maybe that's a little bit edgy for people, that whole difficult conversations thing I said earlier, to say that we need to actually work on de-identifying. Obviously, Buddhism talks about this all day long, but I know that could be a little triggering, especially in Western culture, if you haven't been studying Buddhism for very long, but I think it's something to consider. And if it's a little edgy, that's okay. You don't have to be there. You don't have to agree with me. You don't have to think about it. But one thing you could do if it's triggering or edgy is to write to your intuition to find out what is true for you in that case. So now let's talk about part two. Part two is three tips for bringing mindfulness to the workplace. Okay, these are the things that I thought were really helpful for people in corporate environments. This was stuff that they had referenced in terms of what's the value proposition essentially in the corporate world for bringing mindfulness to your life. Number one was leadership, better leadership through having better self-awareness and empathy and emotional intelligence for others. The performance was higher for people and the happiness. So those were their value propositions for why mindfulness in the corporate world is beneficial. Number two was at the start of a meeting, how can you bring more mindfulness to a group of people that may not necessarily in your office be thinking about mindfulness? Now, if you said even the word mindfulness in a meeting, they might look at you like a crazy person or make some you know, weird remark. Here was their, I think it was brilliant remark. Instead of saying, let's talk about mindfulness or let's take a few deep breaths or anything like that, they said the words, let's take a minute to arrive. Boom, how good is that? Let's take a minute to arrive. When you get to the meeting and before the start of it, you just say, let's take a minute to arrive. You're not saying anything about mindfulness, nothing is said about breath or meditation, but people can definitely see this idea of maybe people are still getting settled in, they're getting their pens and their paper out, they're pulling out their notebook or their computer, whatever it is, but they can be whatever they wanna do, doing, but you in that moment could take a few breaths to settle your mind and get still before beginning the meeting. So let's take a minute to arrive, could be a great way of essentially building a small pause before the start of a meeting without anyone being suspicious of mindfulness seeping in too much if they're not open to it. And then part three of this, tip number three, was how to take a mini mindfulness moment throughout your workday. How do you do that when you have this busy workday? Number one they talked about is going to the bathroom. So just 
leave and go to the bathroom. I think they called it a bio break, which I had never heard. I think that's a bathroom break. I don't know. Is it? Is that a new term? That is news to me, but maybe a bio break involves going to the bathroom and maybe you could go just pause and center yourself in that space. And also, this was something that they shared that they knew someone does. When they get to a meeting, they stand behind their chair and they touch the chair back and they feel the fabric or the chair itself. They take some time to get into their senses. They feel the physical touch of the chair. Touching the back of the chair essentially centers themselves before they sit down for the meeting. Now that is so simple and so stealth, like no one's gonna see or need to know that that's what you're doing. And as you're doing it, you can remember your highest intention for the meeting. So this person has this ritual of touching the back of the chair before sitting down. So they stand there for you know, a moment. This isn't a minute long necessarily. It's a moment of deep breath, of feeling the physical sensation of the chair, of settling the mind and the thoughts setting the highest intention they have for the meeting, and then sitting down to begin. So something super simple that you could do as well if you feel like it's something worth trying. So there you have it, guys. Hopefully this is helpful, whether you're in corporate America or not. And of course, if you know someone that is in a corporate environment or a work situation that would love to bring mindfulness in, maybe these tips might be helpful for them as well. Feel free to share it with them if you think it's something they would enjoy. And of course, if someone in the corporate world would not enjoy this, do not share it with them because they're not looking for it. But if someone is, feel free to share it with them. And if you want to find me on Instagram, Snapchat, and Twitter, you can find me at Jess C as in Compassion Lively. And for show notes for this episode, head over to JessLively.com slash search inside yourself. And remember guys, last but not least, if you guys wanna do awareness at home and go deeper than all of these tips I've just shared, there's so much more to awareness and I cannot wait to dive in with you. There'll be a community, there'll be coaching lessons, six total throughout the two weeks and two live coaching sessions with me. We'll be working as a group and really peeling apart the awareness from the ego so you can start to tell the difference between your ego and your intuition. And again, registration closes tomorrow, April 7th. And as always, when it comes to that stuff, just listen to your intuition. If it tells you to join, great. If it doesn't tell you to join, great. And now for as far as where I'm headed to next, I am staying here in Ubud, Ubud, how, how do you say it? I will, I'm sure, learn how to say this soon. So I'll be saying it correctly as soon as I learn how. I am sure it's amazing. I've heard awesome things and I cannot wait to, you know, just be on Instagram sharing what I'm learning along the way. Until next week. May something wonderful happen to you today.